0: You are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 28. We're looking at verses 23 through 28. You'll find this on page 937 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 28 and verses 23 through 28. Hear the word of God. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. So Paul is in custody. He's chained to a Roman guard in private rented quarters. He has invited the regional Jewish leadership to hear what he had to say. And he wanted to preach Christ and him crucified. And these were the ones who were at least willing to listen. And so Paul spent the entire day from morning until evening explaining to them the gospel He was expounding scripture and dialoguing with them about the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he had done so often with so many, he was reasoning from the scriptures. And for their part, to be honest, the Jews were wrestling with what they perceived as inconsistencies, contradictions, For example, how could they harmonize the prophecies about a great Messiah with a crucified Christ? Let me give you an example from Psalm 72. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's a prophecy of Messiah. And it was hard for them to synchronize that prophecy with the cross. And so the apostle here is pressing on trying to persuade them that this Jesus crucified was the Messiah, the Christ And it was something that Paul had been doing ever since the Road to Damascus experience. And so a sharp division arose among the Jews as a result of Paul's preaching. It says some were convinced, but others disbelieved. And that's typical. The majority, the leaders and the led alike, rejected Jesus as the Christ. After this day-long session wrestling with Scripture, they began to disperse. But Paul had the last word on the whole manner, and he drew from the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. It was there that the prophet was warned about his own ministry, Isaiah. Paul attributes this inspired prophecy of Isaiah to the Holy Spirit, who said, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you'll indeed see, but never perceive. Isn't that a fascinating call to the ministry? Expect no fruit from your preaching. The people to whom I'm sending you will not see, grasp, or accept anything you say. Their hearts are dull, their ears are deaf, their eyes are spiritually blind. (laughs) And thus God underscored for him the hard-hearted and unbelieving response of Israel. I think most of us would be hard-pressed to enter a ministry like that. But of course, there would be a remnant of believers. God always saves a remnant. Yet in general, the Jews would reject the message of salvation. They would break the covenant with their God. And Paul picks up this idea regarding those Jews who listened and rejected Christ. You have followed, he tells them, in the footsteps of your unbelieving forefathers. While using your eyes and your ears, you remain senseless to the meaning of Jesus Christ. With your ears, you hear sounds. With your eyes, you see sights. And with your hearts, you sense certain things. But your souls, they're calloused. You refuse to respond to the offer of grace. And therefore, God is going to send this gospel to the Gentiles of all people. So the first thing I'd like us to consider is the great mystery of Jewish unbelief. The great mystery of Jewish unbelief. It is to my mind the unbelieving response of Jews that is utterly mysterious to me. Their failure to understand and appropriate the gospel is completely baffling. And of course, we know their unbelief was predicted long ago before Jesus came. It was expected. It should come as no surprise. God knew they would reject his son. And yet how could the chosen nation, groomed and lovingly prepared, reject The Messiah in so many ways Jesus Christ had been foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament all those elaborate ceremonies all those religious rites all those bleeding sacrifices all the promises and prophecies the clarity of which was gradually enhanced Psalm 22 just to give you an example they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's Christ. In the fullness of time, Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies. Isaiah 53, you know this very well. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. How could they spurn the gospel fulfilled by a Jewish Messiah preached by Jewish heralds? It's baffling. It's a mystery to me. And I've concluded that their unbelief is really inexplicable. It's irrational. It makes no sense. And that's because sin is irrational. Try to make sense of sin, and you'll learn a lesson in frustration. It's illogical. It's unreasonable. It's foolish and inexplicable. There's no good reason for sin. If I ask myself, and I do this often, why I said or did that sin, I really have no good answer. If I loved God with all my heart, I wouldn't do it. But I do it. Israel's unbelief and rejection of Christ is the bad, irrational fruit of sin. And the Apostle Paul wrestled with this problem of her unbelief in Romans 9 through 11 because Israel had all the advantages. There was nothing needed that God didn't provide. She was like a vineyard carefully tended by a skilled and devoted landowner. And yes, there always was a believing remnant that embraced the promises. But on the whole, inexplicably, strangely, the nation rejected Christ. I think Jeremiah was as stunned as anybody at Israel's unbelief. God commissioned him to carry out a ministry much like Isaiah's. Listen to this. He says to Jeremiah, Declare this in the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. This people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. And the same thing could be said to describe the unbelieving Jews of Paul's day. They had stumbled like blind men. They were foolish and unreasonable. And yet, do we not see the same phenomenon happening in our day? The light of God's word is shining, but people reject it, have no interest in it, find no true illumination for it. Not one ray of spiritual light has reached the depth of their darkened hearts and they do not know, recognize, or embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. And they have no interest in Him. And they have no use for Him. And they don't see their need. But stop and think about it just for a moment with me. How foolish to reject the free offer of eternal life for simply trusting in Jesus Christ. Isn't that baffling? Don't they know that they're heading, rushing headlong into irrecoverable ruin, as we discussed in high school Sunday school this morning? Tell them of eternal punishment in hell and they scoff at the thought. Tell them of the glorious riches in Christ and they treat it with contempt. Point to the evidence for God and everything that he's made and they shake their heads in unbelief. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. I remember years ago in my office, counseling a couple who were on the verge of divorce, not members of this church. I was doing this as a favor for a friend. This is a one-time counseling session. She was just tired of him and she wanted out. There was no infidelity, no grievous sin, no valid reason at all, just a weariness of being married To him. We discussed God's design for marriage. We discussed his command to keep one's vows and the expectation of being steadfast in a lifelong relationship. But she was adamant. She wanted out. So at one point, after about an hour, being frustrated with her stubborn unbelief, I brought the hammer down, so to speak. And I bluntly told her of God's threat of eternal punishment for what she was contemplating. She didn't even bat an eye. She didn't care. She wasn't moved. She could not have been more indifferent to God and resolved in her determination to escape this marriage. And as far as I know, they're divorced. The mystery... Of unbelief. But then, second, the great marvel of Gentile belief. <laughs> as mysterious as the Jewish unbelief is, perhaps more amazing is the faith of the Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul highlights this very thing. Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, they will listen. And of course, he's looking ahead to the astonishing success of the gospel among non-Jews. These are people, Gentile people, who had been separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They had had no advantages, no prophecies, No preparation whatsoever. They've been left for centuries to go on their own way in sin and unbelief. And yet by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, many of them would believe. The Gentile dogs would be among the recipients of the word of life. And they would receive and rest upon the Jewish Messiah preached by Jewish heralds. And so this godless and God-forsaken people would become fellow heirs with Christ in glory. And they would willingly and gladly welcome Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I, quite frankly, find that remarkable. It seems to me even more amazing than Jewish unbelief. And I think the Apostle John shares my amazement in writing his first epistle. Elder Van Drunen read this text earlier. I'll read verse 3 from 1 John 1. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now if you know Greek you recognize that there's a word there that can be translated in one of two or three ways. Here they translate it also and two. It can also be translated even. So let me reread it for you. I think this is the better translation. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim even to you, so that even you may have fellowship with us. He's writing to Gentiles. It's as if John is utterly dumbfounded at something totally unexpected, even to you. We apostles have testified to these things among Palestinian Jews, but now I, an apostle myself, testify and announce these glad tidings even to you Gentiles. And it's baffling. For thousands of years, the majority of mankind had been formally excluded from the covenants of promise. They had been left to grope around in the darkness of pagan superstition. But now, lo and behold, the grace of God in Christ is extended to them. And it really shouldn't have been so surprising, I guess. God had promised it early on. Again, in the text that Elder Van Drunen read, I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And there in that promise, the Lord implied the Gentile believers will be blessed. The Jews overlooked it. The Gentiles didn't know about it. But it was God's plan all along. So even though people overlooked it, the inclusion of the Gentiles was a part of the promise, and it was a significant feature of the Messianic hope from the very beginning. God planned to save a people from all the tribes of earth, not just Jews. It is the mystery of Christ, according to Ephesians 3. And Paul says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Our congregation here, this little church, is comprised mainly, I think, of believing Gentiles. That's amazing. On that final day, there's going to be a multitude that nobody can number from every tribe on earth. But isn't that just like God? So rich, generous, gracious, and glorious. It's no surprise that Christ will have such a vast crowd to worship at his throne, the mystery of Gentile belief. But then third and finally, we should consider the majesty and the wonder of God's grace. In both the accomplishment and the application of the gospel, his grace is wonderful. Our salvation, according to the language of Hebrews 2, is a great salvation. It's a great salvation. The one who decreed it is great, the one who accomplished it is great, the one who applies it is great. The gospel that it reveals, the miracles that confirm it, the precious blood that obtained it, the power that accompanies it, all of it is great. And all the incredible fruit that is born in this fallen world is great. It's a great salvation. No other salvation compares with it. Nobody can fully express how great it is. And throughout all eternity, and I'm not even sure what that means, but no end will marvel at it and will never grow weary in doing so. It saves you and me from heinous sin and vast, unending misery. No wonder it's called a great salvation. And I think the mind is staggered at the gracious nature of our redemption in Christ. Christ because God bestows it upon all and upon any who trust in his Son, without exception. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And I'll be honest with you. I would find it difficult, if not impossible, to give anything good to my enemies. Especially those who profaned my name, insulted my person, and then killed my son. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Shouldn't we wonder at the love of God for guilty, polluted sinners? That the father would give up his own son to suffer in our stead? And in so doing, he gave up the very joy of his heart. He gave up the delight of his soul. But it says God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Any parent in this room who has lost a child knows the gaping hole that it leaves in the heart. I want you to think of the father who not only parted with his son, but crushed him and put him to grief. He gave him over to a painful, shameful, and cursed death on a Roman cross. Is there anybody here who would sacrifice a child to die for his enemies? Raise your hand. The love of God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable like God himself. And if the Father had not loved you and loved me, he never would have given up his Son. Then also think of Jesus himself, who willingly left the blessedness of heaven to die on planet earth. For the joy, (laughs) this is what gets me, for the joy of our salvation... He suffered unspeakable torments of the curse. Who can fathom the depth of such love? Who can measure its length or its breadth? It's an ocean of love that has no bottom. It's without border or shore. And you and I, we might hesitate to leave some comfortable home for a friend in need. Certainly our souls recoil at the thought of leaving our bodies, even though this world is difficult. So which of us would leave our eternal joys in heaven to lead a life of suffering on this cursed earth? Christ freely left the pure delights of his Father. He emptied himself of his glory. And he did so to accomplish our salvation. What manner of love is this? Who's ever loved as Jesus Christ is loved? And he implores us simply to trust him that we might be saved. (laughs) Is it not obvious that belief in him is the only way to eternal life and blessedness? There's nobody to compare with Jesus Christ. He's unparalleled among men and women. He's the beloved Son of God, and in Him alone we're accepted with God. So, let me draw some observations for us to consider. Let's appreciate the worthiness of Jesus Christ to be the object of our love. Scripture reveals how infinitely deep is the Father's love for the Son. Should not we then love and delight in Christ more than anything else, following the Father's example? The psalmist exhorts us to gaze at the beauty of the Lord and to rejoice in his person. And yet on how many trinkets of this world do we spend our deepest affections? These things are temporal. They're fleeting. They're fading away. They're nothing but dross. Let's join with God the Father in being most fond of and delighting in Jesus Christ, who left the joys of heaven for us, and he deserves our deepest love for him. Secondly, let's recognize the heinousness of slighting and despising the incarnate Son. Nothing cuts to the heart of God more deeply than spurning His Son. From all eternity, Christ was the Father's delight, His everlasting joy. And so I ask, did He deliver Him up for sinners, for them simply to trample Him underfoot? Does this not grieve the divine heart? Is it not deeply offensive to God the Father? It's to strike at the very apple of his eye. It's to insult the beloved Son. If, as a Christian, you desire in all things to please him, then please him in this, love his Son. Love him with all your heart and strive with all your might to walk humbly with him, because that's an essential feature of those who expect to see the celestial city. Paul says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. 1 Corinthians 16, He's loved us and he's freed us from our sins by his blood. So to slight and despise and ignore Christ's love is a mark of the deepest depravity. He's opened for us a way to heaven. And would we ever hold him in contempt? Let's revere him as Lord and Savior and let's venerate him as the chief among 10,000. Third, let thoughts of God's love God's infinite, unchanging love, encourage you at all times, especially at the hour of death. You know, the separation of body and soul is not easy. Dying well is important, but it's hard. Yet rest assured that in death we'll go into the waiting embrace of love. Father, said Jesus... I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am so they might see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. That's incredible. Our Savior's desire is that his friends be with him in heaven forever. And the implication of this is that Jesus misses his people. He misses you. He wants you and I, to be with him. He wants us to share his joys, and he wants us to rejoice in his love. He longs for the companionship of all of his disciples, and he prays to that end. And in answer to his intercession, God saves us and conforms us to his image. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we'll see him as he is. My friends, the curse of death, he's endured, and the sting of death, he's removed. And now the king of terrors becomes a reconciled friend, simply to usher us into heaven. Finally, to anyone here who has yet to embrace Christ by faith, let me encourage you. It makes no difference who you are, apparently, according to this text. You can be Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you've done. Come to me, he says, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Rest from sin, rest from its guilt, rest from its misery, and rest from its power. He's the one who created your soul, and he alone is the one who can give it rest. And anyone who comes to him and simply trusts in him may find peace. It's a personal invitation. Come to me, he says. Don't wait. Come to me. That's all you have to do. He's no respecter of persons. Don't you see that the majesty of God's grace is great and rich and glorious? It's abundant because in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and it's precious, as Peter says, better than silver and gold. His grace is profitable, immeasurably rich, better than anything on earth, and it's glorious, full of glory. You know, there's an old story. It's told of a cobbler, and for those who are too young, a cobbler is a shoe repairman. The story is told of an old cobbler who looked over at the pendulum on the old clock in his shop. It was swinging back and forth, the pendulum on the clock. And as it moved from side to side, the cobbler couldn't help but imagine that it was saying to him, forever, where, forever, where, forever, where? And so unnerved was he by this that he got up and stopped the swinging of the pendulum, but even then he couldn't get that nagging question out of his head. Forever. Where? His conscience would not let him rest. He hadn't yet answered the question, and he found no peace until on his knees, as the story goes. He finally responded with a sincere belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if that story is fact or fiction, but it makes an important point, doesn't it? Everyone must answer the same nagging question. Forever. Where? The Lord Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And the question is, what say you. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are staggered at the revelation of your everlasting love through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You've loved us, Christ has loved us, the Spirit has loved us, and it stuns us But we are grateful and filled with joy unspeakable, knowing that in Christ you've accomplished our salvation. We pray that the Spirit would help us to sing praise that is worthy of a triune God who loves us in this way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us RedeemerOhio.org